This is It's PR Darlings, a podcast all about the dark arts of public relations, publicity and all things media. At the end of the day, the crux of it really is that media, if it's used properly, it can drive change and it can keep companies and people honest. I don't want you to make something up if you don't know it. Just say to me, I'm going to go and find that for you and make sure you do before the deadline because there's nothing worse. I'm Greg Quinn from Forward Communications. And I'm Jo Stone from Sticks and Stones PR and together we are your PR darlings. Hi, you're listening to It's PR Darlings podcast, where we chat to industry insiders, journalists, producers, and the businesses using PR successfully. I'm Jo Stone. And I'm Greer Quinn. One of the things we like to do each episode of It's PR Darlings is to demystify some of the industry jargon. Today's episode is brought to you by the word stakeout. And no, it's got nothing to do with a steak out on a Friday night and a couple of beers. In the world of PR, a media stakeout is not something we want to have to deal with too often. And in fact, it means there's a client crisis you have to deal with, which neatly segues into today's podcast, where we explore what a media crisis might look like. We've got a very special guest on today's podcast, Tamara Bow from Channel 7 Sunrise. Tamara's the one who gets up at dawn in order to bring the day's events to the comfort of our lounge rooms while we enjoy our morning coffee. She's also worked as a TV news reporter for both Channel 7 and Channel 9. From live reports on bushfires and crime to feel-good wildlife rescues and success stories, Tamara has covered the full spectrum of news. She's also an ambassador for Tourism Australia and the voice of its many events. Tamara and I have had the pleasure of getting to know each other, not only through our work, but also through yoga and our kids' former school. What I love about Tam is her constant sense of wonder. Tam's a natural storyteller, and despite covering some of the more confronting sides of life, she hasn't become cynical. It's obvious Tamara gets a genuine buzz from reporting and recognises a good story when she sees one. Welcome, Tam. Thank you for joining us on the PR Darlings podcast. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. So good to have you. So to begin with, can you just give us a rundown of what a, a busy day at sunrise looks like for you? Um, we know it's an early start, isn't it? Oh, it sure is. Like this morning, for example, I was I was woken at 2 a.m. It can be anywhere from around 1 a.m. Uh, and from there, you'll hear from producers who sort of allocate you a topic. They might only give you one or two lines and it could be, you know, hot weather today and then you've got to hop up, do your hair and makeup very, very quickly. That takes the least amount of time for me and then get straight in the car and I'll be on the side of the road researching my topic for anywhere up to 10 to 15 minutes and then you could drive up to two hours to get to your location and sometimes I skid in front of that camera with minutes to spare and just start regurgitating information. <laughs> Holy moly and it's the it's the looking glam at three at three in the morning. Yes yeah, it's all thing. in the preparation so you curl your hair the night before and you sleep in one position and you wake up brush your <laughs> hair and walk out the door. <laughs> oh fantastic. How do you find um, the information so if it just says hot weather how do you decide yeah, then What's you about the hot weather you're gonna. I guess then you just start. You've got to stay across topics. Being sunrise, it's a, a national bulletin, so you've got to stay across the topics of the whole day before. So watching the news the night before, 
seeing what's coming up in your news feeds before you go to bed and then just, you know, hitting Google hard really and knowing which sites like the Bureau of Meteorology, which ones are your um, resources that you can trust and which ones just to throw aside and not take advantage of, I guess. So tell us a little bit about the hierarchy of today's newsroom. Do you even get inside the newsroom very often if you're um, taking that direction so early in the morning? How how do you receive your news and who decides what gets covered? Yeah, I don't go into a newsroom at all anymore. I haven't for 10 months now since I've been on the road for Sunrise because everyone's located in Sydney and then our correspondents are in every state around Australia. So we're pretty much on our own. But uh, the person who really ultimately decides on what runs, that really comes down to the chief of staff uh, in the newsroom as that news filters in through them. Then it comes down to producers and then they throw it to us. Who decides what gets covered? So it's the chief of staff? Yeah, then? it really is the chief of staff. I mean, a lot of the time it's great to pitch ideas to journalists um, because then they can sort of give the chief of staff a nudge. But, yeah, it really is the chief of staff who decides ultimately. And so what do you think of the, you know, we're obviously talking about public relations in this pub podcast. So what, what do you think are the biggest mistakes you see PRs make? Do you have any real pet peeves? Uh, for me, I deal with um, a lot of PR companies locally and a lot of them are really fantastic and they'll come towards you and they'll come with a PR, uh, you know, I've dealt with Greer a lot through the years. She's fantastic. She'll wrap the whole story up for you and she will know it inside out and that's so important for a journalist who might be given a topic uh, on the road, will be thrown, hey, Tam, uh, you've got to go to this one instead now and they don't send you any information. So you can turn up and you really need all that information just to be able to pump the PR for it. Uh, probably when you say pet peeve, the only one for me is a PR company that rings and rings and rings. It's like we'll get an email. It's great to receive it. I see you. I've responded. And then, you know, let us go because we're coming if we say we're coming. But not many PR companies do that. And I don't want you to make something up if you don't know it. Just say to me, I'm going to go and find that for you and make sure you do before the deadline because there's nothing worse than writing a package as a journalist, leaving a hole in your story and then it falls over because that information's never received. Oh, very good. I know that you have actually texted me a couple of times for some last-minute details. So I do always try to meet the deadlines. And You always do. I've never had a moment where I've thought, oh, God, this isn't going to go to air with you, but I have with other stories before as well. And when should you pitch to Sunrise? Say you've got a great idea for maybe an outdoor location or a festival or something like that that's happening obviously in the morning. How much time do you need in advance? Like could we potentially pitch to you and then you present it to your producer or your chief of staff or, you know, even if we start with the chief of staff, how much time in advance um, if there is potentially like a a beautiful event, maybe one of those outdoor art exhibitions on the Gold Coast, for instance? Yeah, the best thing is I think probably because obviously news is so fast-paced and there's so much coming in that things do tend to get forgotten. I always think if you can pitch it about a week out um, and, you know, if you have good rapport with a journalist, by all means go to them because they're going to know the best person to pitch that story to, whether it suits news, whether it suits weather uh, or which segment it it slots best into and then they can go to the, the preferred person. Uh, but I also always say to PR companies as well, it's just be ready to be disappointed because it, news is a moving beast that, you know, at the topic of the day can change within a second and stories get dropped 
uh, with moments to spare. And because Sunrise is a national bulletin that also pulls from international as well, uh, things can get lost in the process, I guess. Oh, that's brutal when that happens too. And you just, you know, you get knocked off the front page by some big story or so you know some huge thing that happens and it's like an international story happens and you can't you, you know yeah. your story just gets bumped off it's terrible oh, and it's, it's like the worst nightmare it is and it's the devastating PR. for the journo as well who's obviously you know invested in that story as well and o- often it's can be those feel-good ones which is a real shame as well so what's the best time of the day for people to actually contact you? So if we, we're looking at the nap at 9am and the nap at, <laughs> in the afternoon. <laughs> when is the nap two hours a day? <laughs> <laughs> no time, no time. <laughs> when, when do you actually clock off? Like when do you switch off? Yeah, so you- our shift generally, like I said, starts at 2am and then sometimes our last hit because um, it's all live broadcast with Sunrise, the whole show's run live. So most of the times our last hit will be at the moment daylight savings time is 7am or 8am, but then that moves obviously with daylight savings and all the rest of it. Um, so I don't know, I'm always I'm always good to be approached from about 8 o'clock because that's when you're sort of driving home and you can have a big hour and a half drive home and You'd love to have a yarn. Keep me awake. <laughs> now, some of our listeners are also interested in crisis management. I thought it would be really interesting to discuss a crisis from the journalist's perspective. We so often hear about it from the company's perspective. But the one that comes to mind, because I know that we've chatted about this before, you were on the ground after the Dreamworld crisis in 2016 that killed people. It was an absolutely horrific incident that will haunt all of us for a really long time and traumatised everyone who was there on the day, including staff and the media who reported on it. Can you describe, if you can remember, what that event was like to cover as a journo and if you can talk us through from the moment that you first remember hearing what had happened? Yeah, this was definitely a story that's going to always stay with any journalist who had anything to do with it, whether it was producers in the newsroom or it was journalists on the ground or those presenters on the front desk because this was a big one that it it hit really, really fast and it hit late in the day as well. I think the first... The first we sort of knew of it was we saw a tweet come through through from the Queensland uh, Emergency Services and it was something along the lines of, you know, significant injuries sustained on a ride and we all automatically jumped to the conclusion that, oh, it could be maintenance, guys, but in a newsroom when it's something big like Dreamworld, no matter what time of the day it is, whether you're going to sacrifice a package, you pull a crew out and you send them to just to be safe uh, rather than sorry. And obviously when our crews arrived, it just it kept unfolding and as it, unfolded it was more and more horrific and there were choppers in the sky and they were obviously trying to broadcast really fast as well and some mistakes were made there and some things were seen that shouldn't have been as well uh it was definitely a very difficult time and it's been so ongoing with the inquest and everything we've lived this for uh, you know more than four years now too and Dreamworld was widely criticised at the time for its delay in closing the park and reopening the park too soon. They were also slow to put forward a spokesperson from a journo's perspective. I know it was unfolding, but what did you need? It's so hard. This was such a tricky situation. It was something we've never seen in our theme parks here before. And 
I'm a very compassionate journalist. So for me, I could see all sides of the story and I understand what was happening for the families was just horrific. I also understand that Dreamworld went into damage control as well and they were taking advice from so many different sources too. Uh, But from a journalist perspective, you really do need someone to step straight up to the plate. And I know that, that those decisions can be rash and they can come out the wrong way sometimes. But from a journalist perspective, I know that if we're starved for information, we'll go looking for it. And you can often go to a source that might not be the best alternative that could put a negative spin on it for that company. So I think coming forward straight away and trying to stay ahead of the media, that's so crucial in a situation like this. Well, one of the things that you you do in crisis comms is you check tweets first, like you check social media because often you'll only have like seven seconds before a a crisis is set live through social media. So, I mean, was there stuff that that Dreamworld could have done differently um, that we can learn from in terms of how to deal with the media in a crisis? Yeah, it's it's a really tough one because I think – By the time they were responding, they were going live on air too, which is really tricky because you can't often have time to think about what your response would be and and sit down and have a big powwow about what is this, you know, how are we going to attack this, the plan of attack. But I think, oh, look, it was such an unprecedented situation. It's so hard to know what was right and wrong. You know, the fact that they came out after their meetings as well and then they talked about... pay rises for certain chief executives, mm. all of it just compounded into the story became about the the things that Dreamworld did wrong instead of what they did right. So it was just, it was really tough. Like I say, I'm a compassionate journalist. So for me, my heart broke for anyone that was involved in that situation. Absolutely. I think that was also why it was so sad because Dreamworld's always a happy place and we've all been on that happy ride. So we could really put ourselves in those situations um absolutely the and the media was also Mm. quite criticized for their reporting I mean even just with what I heard going about my day what people were saying about the media and I felt defensive of the media can you maybe offer a bit more of an explanation of um, your role as a journalist and your obligation to inform in a moment like this? Yeah, that's exactly right because that's what our job is. You know, people don't realise the pressure of something like that. You want to get it right you and in your, the back of your mind you want to respect the families and you want to respect Dreamworld as well. And, you know, a lot of the time we're called vultures. We were told to leave the families alone, leave Dreamworld alone. But at the end of the day, the crux of it really is that media, if it's used properly it can drive change and it can keep companies and people honest and over the dream world situation we did see the media have a huge impact on dream world's ongoing response too where they eventually did reach out to the families and then you know money from dream world was donated to the families and and memorials were set up and those sort of things so i think if you can use the media to that advantage i think it can really work well together in a crisis situation there was that classic moment where um, Deborah Thomas was in the press conference saying that that, that uh, Dreamworld had spoken to all the families, and then a journalist said, "Well, actually, I'm one of the families is texting me now, and that's not the case at all." And I think that's also how the media can be powerful. It can make sure that um, people are held accountable. Yes, too. Catch them out when they're saying something or they're throwing some spin out as well. 
Moving on to, to coronavirus, the other crisis that we've been facing this year, um, we're quite interested in finding out how newsrooms have, have adapted to coronavirus and, and you know, how social distancing's imp- impacted on reporting, you know, or is it all just that we're all back to business now? Yeah, well, for me, I stepped out of the newsroom about two months before COVID hit and I went on the road with Sunrise. So it hasn't affected me because it's just me and a camera, so it's very isolated anyway. I was lucky in that regard. But with our newsroom, I ha- I'm still obviously in contact with them and I've seen what they've had to do. They've had to put microphones on these big, long um, cell sticks that are staying a distance from everybody. Uh, a lot of things were done remotely and over Skype interviews and that type of things as well. Uh, but as far as I'm aware, the social distancing uh, isn't as as prominent anymore. It does look as though things are getting a little bit back to normal, which is nice to see because journalism is very face-to-face and it's it's not as great when you can't be in somebody else's space with them. I think particularly for TV too because it is so um, in person whereas with print you can do a lot of it over the phone and indeed with radio too. So, um, But just on that um, Skype and Zoom, um, do you have any tips or tricks? Because I've noticed that even though we are getting a little bit more back to normal, um, just COVID-19 has actually opened newsrooms up to Um, accepting more footage and um, Zoom and Skype calls, which can be quite convenient as well for everyone involved. Do do you have any tips and tricks that our listeners might be interested in hearing about how to submit video um, or how to frame it if it is a live interview? For instance, we're big on lifting the camera up to eye level for Skype media interviews, so we're not looking up people's noses. Because <laughs> <laughs> no one wants to see that. Oh, nobody needs to see that, and especially on breakfast television. The <laughs> 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 big one for us, um, the only thing I can say um, for me, from my perspective through all my years it's just been bashed into me, is lighting. If you can figure out so that you're not backlit by a window because otherwise you become a dark face, if you can have a desk light that's sort of um, throwing light onto your face as well, that's always really handy and make sure your audio is working and the connection's good because on live television it is like watching a car crash when you see it freezing and the person's coming in and out and they will just dump out and then you lose your opportunity in that interview altogether. What about um, submitted videos? You know, what do you advise when people sort of send on, you know, iPhones or um, video news releases? Do you use the video news releases, for example? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, we obviously like to shoot as much as we can ourselves, but you would have seen through the years, everybody now, journalism is evolving and they used to call it parachute journalism where they would put someone in there and someone would shoot it and then send it out to the news crews. The big one for us is if you are filming on an iPhone, turn it on, is it landscape? So turn your phone on the side. Don't hold it right way up because once it hits our screen, obviously a screen is in a landscape position and otherwise it stretches the vision and sometimes it's it's not able to be used at all. Finally, I would love you to share a little bit about how and why you became a journalist for maybe young aspiring journalists. Um, you you didn't follow the standard path. Um, in fact, you were a single mum, weren't you, when you first started studying journalism? Yeah, 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 I was. I, I've always had, uh, as a kid, mum used to say to me, I wonder what you're going to do as a kid because you're going to tell stories. I'd sit there and read out loud 
to all my toys and everything. So I've always loved talking and reading. And, you know, as a kid, I'd have four books on the go. So mum always tried to sort of steer me in some sort of direction. Um, and I went to the university and I was actually going to become a nurse. And the, one of the guidance counsellors there was talking to me about what I love to do. And my main topic or subject in school was always English. So she said, would you consider, you know, journalism? You could write a column from home. So that was always my big, my big target. And I never got to do that. I always went straight into broadcast media. Straight into <laughs> national sunrise. Straight to the top. Straight to the top, exactly. That's um that's an amazing story. It's hard to do journalism and juggle it with with kids though yeah. too. You know, yeah. that's uh, really hats off to you with that as well. We all know what it's like when you're sitting on the side of the road at a siege and, you know, or something's happening and it's just going on yeah. for hours yep. and, and you can't get away from school pickup. Or, uh, but, you know, yeah. what in some regards it's been great. My child is so well-versed in media. It's unbelievable. Since he could talk, basically, he knew who was the Prime Minister, who was the Premier. He's just so across that he knows everything and all his mates generally come to him for information. So it's it's oh, in good stead. <laughs> That's awesome. And, and let me just ask you too, um, what about the kinds of stories that you're interested in Sunrise? Like what's the magic mix that gets something onto Sunrise? Oh, it's, it's, it's from one end of the scale to the other really. So there's obviously the hard news, the breaking news, uh, the doom and gloom of it all. Uh, but if you are a PR company, we, we love, you know, medical stories, stories on education, your general topics, um, finance, and then obviously the other end of the scale, love quirky. So if you can come up with something that's really unusual, that's funny, that gives people a laugh because in breakfast television, it is a lot of light humour as well because there's so much doom and gloom and people are eating their breakfast. They don't want to have hard news shoved down their throat every five seconds. So, yeah, those quirky ones, I love them. So pitch them to me. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Well, listen, you are a total inspiration, especially getting up so early in the morning, day after day, and still looking so glam. Do you have any advice for some of our listeners who might be aspiring journalists and yeah. at the start of their journalism careers, especially given now the situation with the, the industry and everything that's happened and the closures mm. and the job losses? Yeah, yep. I mean, for me, getting into journalism was really tough. So I take a you know, I, I take a great deal of young journos who are coming through the Gold Coast newsroom or who reach out to me on social media and I do not hesitate to tell them the path because once I did it and I took that path, it was easy to get in and I've watched so many others do exactly the same and it's always go to your community radio stations first, establish your voice, get in from there, they pluck them into the commercial radio stations like Hot Tomato uh, and then from there, you can segue into TV once you've got your voice and go to the local newsrooms. And then it's just a step up to the state bulletin and then to national. So I know it sounds easy, but it's, it's a lot of work. But if you want it, you can definitely get it. Wow. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Tam. Um, and for everybody, yeah, you can follow Tam. She's great with sharing her behind the scenes videos um, when she's out on the field reporting. I love I love her Instagram um, and uh, her Twitter as well. You can also find many of her stories on Channel 7's media channels. Is that right, Tam? Yeah, we share a lot on our Sunrise and 7 News, 7 News Queensland, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook pages as well. 
awesome. Thanks, Pam. Thanks Thank so, much. so much. Thank you. Was that painful or no, less painful no. than a 3am? I love <laughs> that. I love this sort of thing. Now, we did promise at the beginning of the show that we'd tell you what stakeout means. You might have seen journalists and camera people outside someone's house or outside a business. Lots of cars, equipment, lights, all waiting and waiting and waiting. There's a lot of coffee and as a journo, you have to have a bladder of steel. Well, that is a stakeout and it can go on for days or even weeks or sometimes even months. And this usually happens if the media want or need something and they haven't been given it yet. And it could be a statement or a comment or just someone leaving the house and driving away. It's a bit like the paparazzi, but usually with a sprinkle of hostility. For normal companies, a stakeout is extremely rare or may never even occur. Media stakeouts tend to accompany a crisis where there's a reluctance to front up to media or answer questions. There were certainly media stakeouts during the Dreamworld crisis. In some cases, these stakeouts could be completely avoidable through being responsive with a statement or a spokesperson. So those who are new to media and publicity might imagine that all dealings with media involve some type of aggressive pursuit or days of media hanging outside your house, which is definitely not the case. So don't let the stakeout scenes scare you away. Businesses that do good tend to generate good stories once they master the art of PR. Well, thank you for listening in and be sure to subscribe, share, rate and review our podcast if you've enjoyed it. You've been listening to It's PR Darlings with Rhea Quinn and Joe Stone. See you next week.